sometimes you can write a poem good enough that it's so beautiful that it like almost hurts to read it. The other day I was walking up to campus and I just looked at the mountains and I like started crying because I was just like, it's too beautiful. It's like, I, I, I shouldn't even be here. I think, yeah, sublime beauty is kind of horrifying. And we're, we're going to read Rilke, who says at the beginning of the Duino Elegies, every angel is terrifying, even the nice ones, because they're angels. Sublime beauty crushes us. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Cozy about the poetry of W.B. Yeats. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional writing prompt that will help you learn to think via a poetic form. To begin with, a quote about writing from W.B. Yeats. This is a quote I've loved for a long time. I share it with all of my classes. I think it's so beautiful and so smart. It's a quote about rhythm in poetry. And I think it wonderfully captures why I think poetry is a particularly potent and alluring art form, and why paying attention to the rhythm and meter of your poems can kind of instantly make them better or more hypnotic. So this is W.B. Yeats. The purpose of rhythm, it has always seemed to me, is to prolong the moment of contemplation, the moment when we are both asleep and awake, which is the one moment of creation by hushing us with an alluring monotony, while it holds us waking by variety, to keep us in that state of perhaps real trance, in which the mind, liberated from the pressure of the will, is unfolded in symbols. If certain sensitive persons listen persistently to the ticking of a watch, or gaze persistently on the monotonous flashing of a light, they fall into the hypnotic trance, and rhythm is but the ticking of a watch made softer, that one must needs listen, and various that one may not be swept beyond memory or grow weary of listening, while the patterns of the artist are but the monotonous flash woven to take the eyes in a subtler enchantment. This is so great. I think it's, it's so perceptive about the reasons why we love listening to poetry, why a poet like Shakespeare can hypnotize us. Any poet worth his or her salt knows that very strict rhythm, unwaveringly strict iambic pentameter, for example, without any variations or, substi or substitutions, is too monotonous to be beautiful. But without a pattern, if it's all variation and all substitution and nothing is predictable, it's too chaotic to be alluring. It's just simply noise. So Yeats is absolutely right to point out that what you need is this wonderful mix of both. You need enough monotony to kind of allure you and to hush you, a kind of lullaby effect, right? But you don't want ultimate monotony. You want enough variety so that it keeps waking you up a little bit, keeps stimulating you. And the combination of this monotony and variety is, I think, exactly what Yeats describes as a kind of hypnotic trance. Read any great poem out loud, or listen to any great poem being read out loud, and you'll instantly fall into this hypnotic trance and know what Yeats is talking about. And for more on the trance-like properties of great poetry, let's go into that conversation about Yeats's own poems with me and Cozy. Hi, Cozy. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for being willing to do this. Um, I think they're better... I was just, I just finished uh, chatting with another student in my other class, recording a podcast for that class, English 218. We were just chatting about, yeah, I think that they're better than monologues. I could have just done all these as monologues, but I do think it, it's going to be better for everybody because you give me insights that never would have occurred to me. It's, more, it's better to listen to two or three people talking than one person just monologuing. It's more interactive. I think it's just better for so many reasons. So thank you for, thank you for being positive and excited. I know that you'll have a lot to say about Yeats. I've made a kind of informal list. I don't really, and maybe I should. Maybe this is a huge failing. I don't know. Maybe these conversations would be ten times better if I if I was more rigorous in planning them. But I think there's something about the spontaneity of them that can be important and appealing. 
So I made a kind of rough list of things that I would like to talk about, but we don't have to talk about any of them if you're burning to talk about other things. I don't really want to talk about gyres or moons. None of, none of that interests me. I don't really care at all. I just want to talk about his poems as poems, not like as, you know, incarnations of some weird astrology. I don't really care at all about that. I don't want to talk about seances. I want to talk about, he seems to, ha- he seems to go through two different styles. There's an early Yeats that is very lush and embroidered. And um, there's a later Yeats that is very minimalist, I guess yeah. you could say. So maybe talk about that change in his in his growth as a poet, what that means, which we like the most. I don't know. I, I want this to be a conversation. I have some questions and I ask them. It sounds like I'm asking you, but I'm really asking us. I don't want this to be like an interrogation. Um, so if you have questions for both of us, you know, please pose them. Okay. Okay. Having said that, I'll ask you, I think the best, most important question about any piece of writing is, What did you like the most about it? Well, something that I really admire about Yeats is how good he is with using form. And I feel like he is always or almost always able to make the form serve him rather than him serving the form. And that's something that I am almost like terrified of in writing poems is that I'll get sucked into this form and then it will make my poetry worse because I'm like forcing it, you know, but he never, it it never really felt to me like he was forcing it. It felt just like he was always able to find the right form to just enhance what he was saying. I think that's my favorite thing. I'm so right. I mean, you could say this about probably most great poets, but they make it look so easy. The goal is to write a poem in strict form that says everything you want to say in the way you want to say it, and then seems to just kind of accidentally land into this perfectly and into this perfect and complex structure. You don't yeah. want any of the syntax to seem distorted or bent just to fit the form. You don't want any of the rhymes to seem like that's the only reason why that word is being used because it has to be for a rhyme word. We, let's look at an example of this. Do you have one in mind? I mean, probably any Yeats poem will do, but I really like the the Lake Isle of Innisfree. Oh, this is a good example of that. Tell us what page that's on again. It's number 12, I think. You know, I probably had read this poem for, I don't know when I discovered this poem, you know, probably as an undergrad like most people, and I probably was reading it for a year or two before I realized, wait, this poem rhymes. Yeah. (laughs) It's in a rhyming form. I had, I didn't even notice. Now, that may or may not be a virtue. I mean, there are many great, great, great poems that I, love dearly with my whole soul in which the rhymes are very loud and very noticeable, you know, mm-hmm. very chimey. So I don't want I don't want anybody to get the impression that the goal of all rhyming is to hide it. But it is a good example of what you started saying because it's the exact utterance he wanted and the rhyme seems so offhand. Yeah. So accidental. You know, so who should read this? Do you want to read it or should I? Um you can read it. Okay. But don't let me hog the mic. <laughs> All right. So here's so I'll read it and then and then I want to hear what you have to say about the way in which this poem is a good example of what what you mean. You know, okay. we can talk about specific lines or yeah. The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there. A hive for the honeybee and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. So formally, what stands out to you about this poem? Well, I I love the rhyming and I love how it feels like very lilting, like almost like very song-like. And I know people have actually like set this to music. Yeah. I like, I've looked it up on YouTube and like, yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like one of my uh, 
weird secret passions is that I love listening to like Irish folk music. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and it reminds me a lot of that. And I think that's very cool because he is talking about like his love of Ireland and like this beautiful spot that he really adores. And I, I also, I just love how the lines are kind of long and it feels very free and expansive. You're not crushed into like a, you know, some sort of tetrameter or something. Yep. That's absolutely one of the reasons why this poem feels so I'm trying. I'm just trying to not repeat you free why it feels so casual. You know, mm-hmm. the, it's an utterance that feels so unbounded and unhampered. Yeah. You know, like dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings is a line. You mentioned the lilting rhythm. It's not really in strict iambic form. I mean, it's not at all in strict iambic form. Dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There's more unstressed syllables in that line than stressed syllables. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be no real strict regular pattern in terms of stressed versus unstressed syllables, you know? Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honeybee, lots of variations and mm-hmm. it's not one stressed and then one unstressed and then, and it's not even one stressed and two unstressed and one stressed and two unstressed. He's giving himself a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. So long lines and also line variation. Some lines are sh- way shorter, like mm-hmm. half the length. So the lines are long or they're short. They have a lot of stresses or they have a lot of unstresses. So he's really good at variation. Yeah. And all of these things, yeah, give this poem a wonderfully watery, and it is a poem about a lake, you know, or an island on a lake. And um, yeah, that, that, that sound is absolutely captured. Anything yeah. else you want to say about this poem before we move on? Well, I, I feel like also there, there's a lot of repetition in it within lines, you know, I shall have some peace there for peace comes dropping slow, or okay. I will arise and go now and go to in this brief. And I think that's interesting in that, like, I, I feel like, I mean, it's a poem about nature and nature has so much repetition, you know, if you okay. look at like, a flower and like the, the way the petals are arranged, it's repeated and repeated. And I think that that's like mirrored in this poem, which I think is just so cool. I had never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And another, we could also add to that, this dream that he has of going there is clearly a repeated dream. Yeah. We all have these fantasies that become favorites of ours that we play over and over again in our minds. We can tell this is one of his because he begins the poem by saying, I will arise and go now. And the first line of the last stanza is the same. I will arise and go now. So it's as if one of my favorite things about this poem, I mean, not I don't want to overanalyze it because it's just so self-evidently beautiful. Yeah. And how could you not love it? The B loud glade. I mean, poetry doesn't really get better than B loud glade, you know? But I also love that there's a little undercurrent of irony here because that repetition of I, w- I will arise and go now makes it clear to me that this is an unachievable dream. He's not getting up. Yeah. It's like, well, why don't you arise and go already? You know, no, there's just something he's, he's sitting in his chair and he's not getting a rise and go now. It's a totally mental exercise. Mm -hmm. Repeated, repeated, repeated. Yeah. Those repetitions inhabit lots of other areas of the poem, but also like there's a Hopkins-esque level of sonic texture here. Clay and wattles. Yeah. Be loud glade. Oh, maybe you know, that's why I like this poem so much. And uh, noon, a purple glow, evening full of the linnet's wings. I mean, noon, a purple glow. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> noon, a purple glow. You know, whenever you can get purple bees, uh, the sound of lake water into a poem, it's like you're doing yourself a lot of favors by writing about something that's already so inherently beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, despite that little weird thing about the irony that I said about, oh, he's not getting up, we can just ignore that and say, all you have to do to write a lasting, immortal poem is to write something that is unabashedly beautiful. Yeah. You know, there's no secret code. There's no hidden message. This isn't like an allegory for this or that. It's just a gorgeous poem about a gorgeous place. And if you phrase it gorgeously, then you've done it. You've done it. <laughs> I think that's so true. I don't know. Lately, I feel like I've been in this kind of imagist kick where I just want to read about beautiful things. I don't care if it has some sort of deep meaning or anything. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just want poems that make me look at the world and say, yeah, that's gorgeous. I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm totally with you. And yet, Yeats himself bears some of the responsibility slash blame, if we want to call it that, for 
for giving poetry a bad reputation for generations of readers. Yes. You know, no, the, the modernists, of which, you know, he, he could be included quite easily, made poetry way more difficult than it ever had been before. We're going to be reading Eliot and Rilke in, in the coming weeks. They too are guilty of this. So on one hand, they make poetry look on the surface way more difficult than it ever has been. Yeah, the reading public of poetry changes. Um, and it's never really the same again. It never really recovers. Maybe, do we want to talk about this? How do you feel? This is just, you know, a totally open-ended question. If your answer is, I hate them, that's an absolutely correct answer. How do you feel about some of his later, quite difficult philosophical poems? I think, as I say philosophical, I'm thinking about poems like Among School Children or Vacillation or Michael Robart and the Dancers or these poems in which he's clearly displaying a level of intelligence that could alienate us. How do you feel about that? Well, I'll show you my book. Okay, <laughs> yes. The markings. They're a lot heavier towards the beginning. <laughs> Very good, yeah. <laughs> um, I did not like them quite as much. I think, I mean, I do really like some of his later poems, even the ones that are kind of uncanny or slightly disturbing, you know, like The Second Coming or The Circus Animal's Desertion. And, but I feel like what I like most about those poems is not any of like the philosophical stuff, but just the surprising images that he has in there. Yeah. And that makes me kind of do a double take. But yeah, I, I don't hate them. Um, but definitely the more philosophical ones were a little more difficult for me. <laughs> and if I don't, if I don't like love a poem, if I, I don't know, if I don't feel drawn to a poem within like the first five lines, then I kind of am just like, oh, I just don't really like this one. <laughs> that's totally great. I, mean, I think that's an absolutely great way to read. I mean, life is short. Life is really short. So we don't have, we don't have time to read everything. And of course you should challenge, everyone should challenge him or herself and, and force themselves to encounter, quote unquote, some of the great books, you know, and some of those great books present really real challenges. But yeah, for the most part, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'm not kind of rambling and this is kind of a tangent, I'm sorry, but yeah, poetry is for pleasure. Poetry is for pleasure. Yeah. We must not ever forget that. So you don't, you're not obligated to read poems that don't give you pleasure. Yeah. I mean, a poem, maybe let's just hit it just so, so that we can kind of like say that we ate our veggies, but <laughs> a poem like Among School Children, what page is that on? Oh, it's on page 121. Oh, maybe let's spend five minutes with this poem. Yeah, just so that no one can, <laughs> not that anyone would, but just so that nobody could accuse us of avoiding, quote unquote, the difficult Yates, you know? Okay. So I'll just kind of narrate an experience, a human experience of what it's like to read this poem among school children. I walk through the long schoolroom questioning. Very clear, totally clear set scene setting. You know, no one's confused yet. A kind old nun in a white hood replies. The children learn to cipher and to sing, to study reading books and history, to cut and sew, be neat and everything, in the best modern way. The children's eyes in momentary wonder stare upon a 60-year-old smiling public man. I quite like it so far. There's this wonderful self-awareness that he's this kind of old weirdo that the kids have to pretend to admire, you know? <laughs> And he has to like nod and give his quote unquote approval to mm -hmm. this classroom. Stanza two, it instantly gets weirder. I dream of a Lydian body bent above a sinking fire, a tale that she told of a harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy. I'm not certain I quite follow. I'm a little bit t speaking tongue in cheek because I know some of his biography and some of his history. And I've read analyses of this poem, but just as a lay reader, aren't we confused? Yes. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Let's be brave. Heart. <laughs> that changed some childish day to tragedy told. And it seemed that our two young natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy or else to alter Plato's parable into the yoke and white of the one shell. Weird. So, He's talking about Plato, who's a philosopher. He's referencing some kind of teaching of Plato. We could keep reading, but it's already like 
it's already for a certain type of audience. Yeah. An audience that knows Plato, but also knows a little bit about Yeats's life and uh, love life. Anyway, I won't keep reading it. It gets, I think, even harder to grapple with. I just want to say, though, that I would never, ever write this poem off. It might be one of Yeats's most, quote unquote, important poems. I'm doing too much talking, but I'm, I'm just trying to wash my hands of this poem. Why do I say it's one of his most important poems? It does grapple with some of the most difficult thinking in Yeats's yeah. poetry. And it ends with this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stanza, which I'll read. Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? That last line, how can we know the dancer from the dance, is such a good line that it makes this poem impossible to ignore. Yeah. I promise I'll shut up. One more thing, though. It's like, in a weird way, it's a, it contradicts some of what I've been saying already about this poem. It's a very cerebral poem. It's about ideas. He's making certain philosophical arguments. But he finishes the poem by making an argument, I think, that goes something like this. When you read poetry or encounter any art form, it's impossible to separate style from substance or artwork from perceiver. When you listen to a great piece of music, you get transfixed and you become part of that music. Yeah. Literally, you can start dancing to it, you know? And the, the music as sound waves enters your body. And it's stupid to make distinctions between music and dancer or dancer and dance because you become kind of one entity. And I think that's the best way to read poetry. You just have to kind of give yourself to it bodily and be transfixed and transformed in this way. So yeah, he makes all these tortured philosophical arguments. And yet it's still a poem that I would challenge and invite and encourage everybody listening to really spend some time grappling with, even though I'm probably with you, Cozy, that my favorite poems are when Yeats is speaking, quote unquote, clearly. Yeah. Sorry, that was like a really long... Where else do you want to go? Favorite poems, favorite aspects, favorite like lessons you can learn as a writer? Well, I think maybe we should read Easter 1916. Oh, how did you know that I wanted to read that too? <laughs> okay, before we read it, why should why this one? Well, I I feel like this is one where Yeats is being really honest, really brave with facing his emotions and facing what's happening. I mean, it's about people that he knows who have been killed and trying to like liberate Ireland or something like that. I don't that's know. Right. Yeah, that's history. right. But you know, it's something he feels really, really deeply about. And when I was reading this poem, he, I, I feel like there would be a temptation to make it so glossy and perfect. And, you know, when you eulogize people, you, talk about all the good things they did but he's just very honest about how these people were human but there's still just so much sorrow over their loss and i i don't know i don't know if i could write a poem that that that's that brutally honest in in all aspects i don't know if i could either it takes it takes a willingness to endure being hated by people who you love and respect exactly you're exactly right it's an elegy for people who died in say a good cause, but Yeats even puts the notion of good cause under the microscope and interrogates that. Was it a good yeah. cause? One of my favorite moments near the end of the poem. It's an elegy for people that certainly the country of Ireland expected Yeats to unabashedly admire and praise, mm -hmm. but he refuses to do that. So obviously it kind of ticked off England because he's writing a poem in their honor to begin with, these Irish rebels. It ticked off Ireland too, because he's not saying that they are unambiguous heroes. Mm -hmm. So honesty, if we were making a list of why William Butler Yeats is a great poet or a list called what we can learn about how to write great poetry from William Butler Yeats, honesty. Yeah. Say, be willing to say ugly truths. Mm -hmm. Ask questions that you can't answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, if you... Be honest about what you don't know. Yeah, be honest about what you don't know and make poems out of what you don't know. Don't make poems out of what you know. Make poems out of what you don't know. 
Yeah. If you got a PDF of this book and clicked Control F and searched for question marks, I bet you'd find that Yeats uses the question mark more than any of his contemporaries. He's, he loves the question mark. Yeah. He loves asking questions. He'll compose whole poems just out of questions. And these poems don't often end with answers because he knows that the questioning is itself, the questioning is where the drama lies. Yeah. You know? Easter 1916. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among gray 18th century houses. So, you know, he's, he's by them, I have met them, talking about these dead people who have fallen. He knew them. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a gibe to please a companion around the fire at the club being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All is changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill. So now he's talking specifically about these Irish rebels, that man, this woman. These were people who were kind of executed brutally, heartlessly, without a fair trial by English soldiers. So there's a lot to be mad at here. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when, young and beautiful, she rode to harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end. So sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart, yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream, the horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name, as a mother names her child, when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. So elaborate, what makes this so great? Oh, there are so many things. On, on just the level of like, the line i love well i love the rhythm of this and and how urgent it feels it's like you can almost feel like horses galloping as you read it yeah that's good the just like how short the lines are it it just feels like very immediate um and i love how he he rhymes but it's it's not super strict it's just enough to like keep clicking in your mind that there is repetition in it and I like, I, I think he does a really good job in this poem of like juxtaposition and kind of like contradictory images. I mean, he starts out talking about how these people have like lived in this like kind of gray world of 18th century houses. And, and then he goes on to talk about like this very vivid event that's happened. Yeah. 
and then just that repeated line of a terrible beauty is born. I think, I mean, it's almost an oxymoron. Indeed. And it, I, but it, it's very true, I think, as well. And, and I think it's a truth that not many people would be willing to say, you know? Yeah. That, like, this is something that it is awful, but it also does have some sort of beauty to it, the passion that these people had and the way that it's affected others. Could you say that the phrase, this sounds like a leading question, you can tell that I think the answer is no. <laughs> could, you, could you say that the phrase, a terrible beauty is born, is unambiguously joyful or good? Is he happy or no. is this? I, I don't, I mean, I think no. It's something that's kind of horrifying, but you can't, like, you can't look away and you can't deny that there is something compelling about it. Yeah, so it, it has goodness in it because it's beautiful, but there's something terror, terrifying about it. Yeah. So these rebels were, there was this failed uprising and the rebels were caught and kind of executed. And, and the kind of backlash that this incited, I almost never talk about contemporary events ever, ever. Almost always a horrible idea. But, you know, this summer, you know, we saw in the wake of the death of George Floyd, I thought about this poem and I thought about that phrase, a terrible beauty is born. And I thought, what would Yeats say about this? I think he'd write a poem that looks very similar. Yeah. You know, like this wonderful phrase, this is so good. What if excess of love bewildered them till they died? He doesn't know. So think about the protesters, like what if excess of love for their cause has bewildered them in some way? He's not saying it has, but he just wonders, where is the line? Yeah. And he's willing to even just ask that question. He doesn't give us an answer. He just says, I wonder, you know, should these rebels, should these Irish rebels have not attempted what they attempted? Can you be too in love with a good cause yeah. so that you start believing that ends justify means? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's so brave of him to even just ask. And I think why this is lasting poetry is because he doesn't say, I know the morally right thing to do. I have the answers. I know who the bad guys are. Let me tell you. He's saying, no, I myself as a human am so conflicted about this. This is such a complicated situation. And I refuse to pretend that it's not complicated. Yeah. And I think that's, I think we all have that sort of question. And it's the brave people who are willing to keep questioning, you know, instead of just saying, oh, well, I'll just pretend that there's a simple answer yeah. <laughs> and, like really... he, and he gets it he, he gets his cake and eats it too like he, this person i thought would become a great poet this other guy though i hated him you know because he yeah. treated i thought he was a drunken vainglorious lout he treated someone i love horribly and yet i number him in the song you know so he's willing to put aside these personal grudges and say you still even though you were a horrible in some way person you still deserve to be honored. You know, it's, nothing is black and white with Yeats. Mm -hmm. Everything is so wonderfully nuanced and carefully the complexities of life are celebrated. I just love that. Can I just underscore all the things you said, like about the rhythm, this like quick drum beat, you know, or you said horses hooves. I think that's really great. And the rhymes are just audible enough to make us feel like we're listening to a hypnotic song. Yeah. But they're not nursery rhyme. No, they're not regular enough to comfort you in any way. <laughs> oh, this is good. Say more about comfort or discomfort. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that there's kind of, when I was reading this, I, I kind of thought about like the uncanny, like Freud's theory about the uncanny. And yeah. I, it came up actually in several of his poems. But when I was reading that line about uh to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep has come. I love that so much. You know, that it's, it is, it is an image that kind of, that works. I mean, and sleep is compared to death, but there's this very, like the idea of like a very gentle and loving and nurturing mother, like speaking her children's names, but this is like a violent, horrible death that you're comparing it to. And so it just, and I yeah. think that a lot of the rhymes do that same sort of thing with sound. That's They're great. They're just off enough that it makes you feel, oh, 
you're like a little bit discombobulated. <laughs> I think probably the, the master of that technique is Dickinson, who we'll talk about in a few weeks. She is so good at using rhyme in this wonderfully uncomfortable way. Yeah. So many Dickinson poems feel like, to me, they, they affect my psyche in the same way that wonderfully beautiful, atonal classical music does. Mm-hmm. It's like there's something wonderfully shiver-inducing yeah. about this. Anyway, but Yeats, back to Yeats. You're so right about even the images can, can seem... Okay, so we're adding to our list how to write poetry as good as Yeats's. Compare or juxtapose seemingly disparate things. A Terrible Beauty is Born is a microcosm example of this, but why does he start talking about birds and horses? And it's such a strange... The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute, almost we're in a kid's book. Almost this is the type of rhyme that you'd find in a children's book about mm-hmm. nature. Minute by minute they change. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live. The stones in the midst of all. That's definitely the time in the poem where the rhymes are the most loud. Yes. And we're talking about animals. We're suddenly in this barnyard fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> Why are we talking about animals in the midst of this national unfolding chaos? I think yeah, partly to describe what, you know, to achieve what you've just described. Because he wants a sense of uncanny cosmic nature affecting chaos. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Just, just the idea that, you know, there's this peaceful nature that can live harmoniously and then humans are almost the uncanny bit that come in and just disrupt it yeah that's good that's really good (laughs) uh last thing to say about this poem look at how he look at how he will handle sejuras in the middle of a line this is going back to your original comment cozy about how the poems are in such strict form but feel effortless and feel like they're not like they're still free yeah they're in strict form but they still feel free For example, that woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill, which sounds quite strict. You can hear that as poetry. Mm -hmm. Look, Look what comes next. What voice more sweet than hers when, young and beautiful, she rode to Harriers? That sounds like a bit of prose. Yeah. Do you know? Because of that pause after when... Mm-hmm. The interrupted clause, when young and beautiful, hers and Harrier's is a, almost a slant rhyme. Another wonderful little variation like this is on the top of page 85. Enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream, the horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud. So that's Sejora after rider. Yeah. These wonderful metrical interruptions that keep us constantly on our toes. I mm-hmm. love so much. Yes, I think that's so good. And that is something I try to use in Jamit whenever I write something that's formal because I'm so scared that it will sound sing-songy. And he does such a good job with it. I will never be as good, but... No, don't say that. No, don't say I might don't. be. I might be, actually. Well, that's it, what I'm striving for. That's great. You have it within <laughs> you to become it. I mean, Yates, Yates only got this good because he tried to be as good as, you know, Shakespeare or William Blake. So we must say to ourselves, we could become as good as Yeats and we could become great, you know? Why not? (laughs) Um, Okay, I want to talk about parenting. Yes. And this weird daughter poem. I don't want to to monopolize the the agenda here, though. So if there are other things, please let me know. I think we could add to our list one thing he's good at, and we've kind of talked around it. So we have on our list how to write as well as Yeats metrical variations to make the language seem free, be brutally honest, be willing to say ugly truths, be willing to write, well, insist that to yourself that you write about what you don't know. Don't a- answer questions, just pose difficult questions, and that itself is poetry. Yeah. Write beautiful images like Be Loud Glade. What else have we said so far to summarize? You said something about making your reader uncomfortable. Yeah, discomfort. That's right. Like, he writes Innisfree, and that sounds like a comfortable, sweet little poem, but he also likes to provoke his reader. So don't be afraid of provoking. This kind of overlaps with several of those, but I would say insist on surprising your reader. Never say what's obvious. 
My favorite example of that, I mean, we just saw an example of that, like, what if excess of love bewildered them till they died is a non-obvious and very surprising thing to say about people fighting for a good cause that you should be technically honoring. What if they were in some way, they took it too far, you know? An example of that that I love even more is in prayer to my daughter, which is on page... 90. Thank you, page 90. So you think, okay, he's a very famous poet at this time in his life. He's going to write a poem for his daughter. Shouldn't it also be like, oh, you're great and sweet and the best? <laughs> but Yeats knows too much about poetry to let himself do that. That's not a poem. Oh, aren't you so great and sweet? And yeah. you, won't you grow up to be the best? That's not a poem. I'll just read the relevant stanzas and then Cozy, I want to get your take. Like, I just want your reaction. So this, this, this poem, he announces at the beginning, that this poem is the product of a, a long meditation about his daughter yeah. and the world that she's coming into, what kind of world she'll grow up in. So he says this, stanza one, two, stanza three. May she be granted beauty and yet not wonderful line break. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> May she be granted beauty and yet not. This is what poetry can do that prose can't do. It can hold you in wonderful suspension there. Wait, not beauty? May she be granted beauty and yet not beauty to make a stranger's eye distraught or hers before a looking glass. For such being made beautiful overmuch, consider beauty a sufficient end. Lose natural kindness and maybe the heart revealing intimacy that chooses right and never find a friend. And then that's where he says later on, in courtesy, I'd have her chiefly learned. So make her smart, make her be worthy of praise for more than just being pretty, you know? Yeah. Do you have a reaction to this? Like, I'm not going to ask you to pretend that he's your dad. That might be an uncomfortable thought experiment, but <laughs> think, about, think about yourself as a daughter or think about yourself as a parent or future parent. Do you find this despicable or noble or I don't know? What's your reaction? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think everybody wants to be pretty. <laughs> so I could see maybe his daughter reading this and being like, Dad, why would you, yeah. you know, wish on me the gifts of ugliness? Well, I'm not saying it's know. not ugliness. He doesn't say ugly, though. That's, that's not, the thing. Not like he's the like, most beautiful person ever. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I mean, I don't have kids, but I can see where he's coming from because I've known people who are really attractive and have no personality because all they need to get friends and attention is to be attractive. <laughs> says, and, he says like, you know, I don't want the looking glass to become your goal, the mirror. Like yeah. I want you to have a life that involves more than staring in a mirror. Well, and I, I think I'm, it's a little bit harsh, I guess, in a way. And maybe it's just his brutal honesty coming through again, because I feel like there's probably no parent that only wants their kid to be beautiful. And, and that's the end, you know? Right. And, and maybe if you could be gorgeous and also very smart and, you know, funny and happy and good to be around, then that would be lovely. But I don't know how often that is <laughs> that happens. I, also, maybe I'm being very cynical now. I don't no, know. No, I think you're right. I think every parent, I think you're right to say that he's just saying what every parent would admit, which is that every parent would want their children to grow up with goals that are higher than physical beauty. Yeah. But not everyone would say this in writing as a famous poet. Like everyone will read this poem. Everyone will read this. His daughter yeah. will know that everyone reads this poem. And he's saying, I don't want you to be too beautiful because it's a kind of danger. It's a kind of trap. It's kind of a curse. I don't know, just this poem and Easter 1916 and all his poems really, I, it just gives me the sense that Yeats either doesn't give a crap about what other people think about him or he's just brave enough to care but to decide that it's not important. <laughs> I think it's, it's got to be a mix of both. Like, of course he cared. And if you read his biography, you know that you know he, he wanted attention and recognition for his poems just like any of us would but i think one thing that separates the great poets from the non-great poets is that the great poets make their art a priority and are willing to do anything it takes even if it means making enemies or getting disapproval disapproval among their peers 
They're willing to put anything into a poem that it takes to make that poem great. I, I was listening, this, is, this might sound like a tangent, but I promise it's related. I was listening to the Stevie Wonder song, Isn't She Lovely? I don't know if people know this song or listen to this song anymore. It's a really, really great song, Isn't She Lovely? And it's about the birth of his daughter, Stevie Wonder's daughter. I was listening to it and it instantly made me, and I was thinking about our upcoming conversation. I thought, oh, this is a kind of version of prayer for my daughter. The lyrics are, you know, isn't she lovely? Isn't she beautiful? I can't remember. She's precious. She makes the world, I'm now slightly paraphrasing, a brighter place, you know, uh-huh. all this stuff, just like from line by line, nothing but sentimentality and triteness and cliche. And yet it's a great, it's a great song with a capital G. Yeah. So I'm thinking, how is it that it, you can write a great song with a capital G and the lyrics can be bad? The lyrics from a poetic standpoint can be bad. <laughs> And I'm not sure I have total answers to this question yet. I mean, the music, of course, we listen to songs for their music, but the music does something to those words. This is now a tangent inside a tangent. I'm really sorry, but my son is obsessed with snakes and venomous snakes. And he just recently learned that you make anti-venom from venom. So now what he wants to be when he grows up is like a rattlesnake milker. He wants to go find snakes and like milk them (laughs) for their venom. That sounds amazing. Interesting life choice. (laughs) (laughs) but he just is totally fascinated with this fact that anti-venom is made from venom yeah and i promise this relates there's something about the wonderfulness of the music of that song that the music of that song is so good it transforms lyrics which on a page would look so bad they become a necessary component to that song do you know what i mean like the lyrics couldn't be otherwise or that song wouldn't be as good i don't know if I'm making any sense. So the, the music kind of transforms the, the, the cliche venom into this wonderful anti-venom. That song becomes this just wonderful, glowing, joyous, exuberant anthem you yeah. know, of happiness. Yeats is not writing a song. Yeats's work exists on a page. And I think on a page, you can't get away with saying, aren't you lovely? Aren't you beautiful? You make the world a better place. Because it's cliche. You have to sh- surprise your reader. You have to say the non-obvious. That was kind of a long tangent, but I, I, I bring it up because I think lots of us, as we begin to write poetry, think that it's the same as song lyrics. Yeah. And I think that we get a lot of our inspiration for our poems from song lyrics. And I just think that there should be this total separation of church and state between song lyrics and poetry. I think you're right. I can't write song lyrics to save my life. <laughs> but but when I started writing poetry, I did write very song-like poetry of course this was when I was in like fourth grade so it was just bad all around but (laughs) they were very rhyming and I used words that sounded like they were out of the hymnal oh yeah yeah (laughs) well that's that's because what you knew I mean this is a great story because it, it illustrates this concept that whatever you surround yourself with is what will come out of you yeah absolutely just print off the lyrics of any song that you love and read them and you'll kind of cringe with embarrassment like i like this you know but of course as a song it's a totally different art form yeah you can kind of learn there might be a little bit of overlap yeah bob dylan people are screaming into their earbuds bob dylan won the nobel prize but there are only like four bob dylan songs whose lyrics could exist in the world as poems i think that that's true yeah anyway what else do we want to talk about let me look at my list but if you have something else please let me know should we talk about um Revision, like Yeats, nine years later. So there's this very famous poem, Sailing to Byzantium. You'll know this poem, right? What page is this on? Page 102. Absolutely one of Yeats's, you know, top three most famous poems. Page 102. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas. How great is that? The mackerel crowded seas. I think that's my favorite line in this. <laughs> so good. Mackerel crowded seas. I just love it so much. He wrote this and then nine years later. So you'd think that he's nine years smarter, nine years a better poet. He changes the first line of this poem. The line that I just read and the line that editors continue to print is not, is not what he wanted nine years later. He changed it to old men should quit a country where the young in one another's arms, et cetera, et cetera. So nine years later, he changed it from that is no country for old men to old men should quit a country where the young, that's the first line. 
instantly worse. <laughs> so, I mean, we could talk about what makes that worse, and maybe we should, but the general broader question is, oh dear, can we not trust ourselves as poets? Well, maybe that's why you have workshops. I don't know who Yates was sharing poems with. I mean, Ezra Pound, I guess. Um, do you have any advice or tips or strategies for gaining confidence in your own choices as a writer? Yes, workshop. But, but surely one should still strive for some level of self-trust. Yeah. I don't know. This is actually something I have a really hard time with. I will admit, I absolutely hate revising my poems <laughs> because they kind of just, I'll sit down and write when I feel in a poetic mood and it'll just come out of me. And I'm like, Oh, it's my baby. Like, yeah. I just don't want to hurt it. I don't want to cut off anything. Yeah. want to change anything because that is what came out of me when I was in that space and in that mindset, and it feels really organic. But then I think sometimes it really does need revision in my class that I took from you winter semester, I, I sent my mom all of the poems that I had revised at the end. And I asked her which one was her favorite. And she said it was the one that I had workshopped the most. Mm. That was her favorite, but she didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And that was a poem that I was really, I wasn't sure about because I liked how it was when I first wrote it. And I had revised it and revised it until I wasn't sure if it was even good <laughs> anymore. Yeah. I think maybe giving yourself some time. But I mean, he gave himself time and then he came back and made it worse. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know either. I mean, I've had the experience of revising a poem, of giving up a draft time, coming back to it, making changes that in the moment I think are great. But then later on, I realized, oh, you made that worse. This, yeah. The eighth draft was way, way, way worse than the seventh. Yeah, I think maybe the best thing to do is just keep your drafts. Excellent you advice. Know, you aren't like... <laughs> closing any doors and then giving yourself a little time and coming back but making sure that you're still kind of in the spirit of the poem because I feel like when Yates came back he could not have been in the spirit of this poem anymore I don't know that new first line just sounds so stuffy and Victorian and yeah and this one feels it kind of reminds me of um Tennyson's poem of, about Odysseus as well. Oh, very good. Yeah, Ulysses. Yeah. 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 It kind of gives me that sort of vibe, but that new first line does not at all. You are exactly right. That's exactly that is no country for old men, period, is so emphatic and defiant. And it has this wonderful, authoritative, proclamatory tone. Yeah. Do you know? Just yeah. like, and that's the tone you're right in Ulysses, this wonderful, defiant, proclamatory emphatic, you know, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Mm -hmm. Old men should quit a country where the young. It's like, should? How did should get, get allowed to creep into there? You know, it yeah. becomes very advicey and tame mm -hmm. and boring. Yeah. Keep your drafts. Excellent advice. Hard to do in this age of like Google Docs and Microsoft Word where we're revising kind of on the go. Yeah. But keep some of those drafts and share writing with people. Get trusted readers who can tell you, no, 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 this is way better. You're going in a wrong direction. I'm now looking at some quotes I've called from Yeats over the years that I've loved. Yeats once wrote, the end of art is ecstasy and that cannot exist without pain. Hmm. How, how great is that? Isn't that I great? That. Yeah. What, you mean, what you mean about comfort and discomfort. First of all, I love that he says the end of art is ecstasy. Well, I think that's absolutely true. I, I mean, what else could it be? You know, an ecstasy isn't pleasure. I said at the beginning of this recording, poems are for pleasure. But ecstasy is something much harder to endure. Mm -hmm. Can't exist without pain. So what do you think, Cozy? Do you think that all great poems must contain some element of some negative thing, some ugliness, some pain, some provocation, some grit, some... I mean, we just said Isle of Innisfree. I mean, does the Lake Isle of Innisfree contain pain? Well... I think sometimes that maybe it it requires kind of an element of discomfort within the poem, but maybe it's just sometimes you can write a poem good enough that it's so beautiful that it like almost hurts to read it. Does that make sense? It I does. don't know. No, the other does. day I was walking up to campus and I just looked at the mountains and I like started crying because I was just like, it's too beautiful. It's like, I, I, I shouldn't even be here, you know? 
And I, I think maybe the Lake Isle of Innisfree is kind of like that, that it's so beautiful that you're just like, I just, I need to be there, but you can't. Yeah. And maybe that's the pain for Yates too, is that he wants to be there and he's longing to be there and he isn't there. This is true. I mean, that is an element of pain in that poem. But I think, yeah, sublime beauty is kind of horrifying. And we're, we're going to read Rilke, who says at the beginning of the Duino Elegies, he makes another kind of proclamatory statement. He announces, every angel is terrifying, period. It's one of the best sentences in Rilke. Every angel is terrifying, even the nice ones, because they're angels. So beauty, intense beauty, sublime beauty crushes us. Yeah. You know, it's not always comfortable. This is Yeats. Listen to this. This is so great. He's writing this in a letter. This is actually one of my most favorite recent finds. I found this maybe four, four or five months ago. He says, I can't remember who he's writing to. It doesn't matter. Do you suppose for one moment that Shakespeare educated Hamlet and King Lear by telling them what he thought and believed? As I see it, Hamlet and King Lear educated Shakespeare. And I have no doubt that in the process of that education, he found out that he was an altogether different man to what he thought himself and had altogether different beliefs. So I, oh, I, I can't that. stop reading that. So I just want to pick your brain about the relationship between the poet and the poet's work and how to make sure that you are constantly being taught by your work or constantly letting your work surprise you. I think that art is sometimes a space where we can allow ourselves to entertain ideas that we wouldn't otherwise. Does that make sense? Like if you're writing a poem, you can say things that maybe you would never think to yourself because it's a poem and it's art and it's, it's just in kind of this other world. You're able to kind of distance yourself from it a little bit in a way that allows you, I don't know, to get outside of your comfort zone, to get outside of your, preconceived ideas or you know the the norms or whatever it is and and kind of just see the world from a different perspective like authors who write poems from like the perspective of the other gender yeah with jk rowling writing harry potter you know and she has to get inside the mind of this teenage boy right that's maybe a bad example but no i think it's a fine example (laughs) but i think you know if you if you have a character and maybe this is even a little bit what Herbert was doing with Mr. Cogito. I don't know, but like you kind of create this person who can have different thoughts from you. And maybe that's just the speaker of your poem. Right. But then you allow yourself to kind of think about things in a way that you normally wouldn't. And it doesn't have to mess with your identity, but then when you're done, you can go back and look at it and maybe revise your beliefs. It's always good when our preconceived notions and biases and beliefs are interrogated a bit. We don't want to walk through the world with uninterrogated opinions. The more interrogated our opinions are, the closer we arrive to anything like truth, right? Yeah. But also, it's just good art. Okay, we, ha- we only have one minute, but what you've said is so great. Deserves you know, a whole other hour of elaboration. Art is exactly that. It's an alternate zone. It's like a game. Yeah. There's this great book called Homo Ludens, the author of which I'm blanking on. But he describes, he talks about play in human evolution and human societies, play and games. And he makes the point that play and games exist outside of culture, but inform culture. So if you think of a football game, you go there and you do this weird dance and the rules are different. It has its own rules and it has literally its own kind of sphere of operation. Yeah. And art is very much like that. You go into a poem it's like a stadium and you get like Mr. Cogito, you get to pretend to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. But what happens in that stadium, in that little arena of art or poem will change the way that you look at the world. When you come out of that stadium, you've learned a little bit more about this, a little bit more about that. What do I actually want? From, like you get to like have conversations with yourself that you wouldn't get to in real life. What do I actually want for my kids? Yeah. And is it just all that normal, obvious stuff or are there more conflicted desires? What do I actually think about this rebellion and those martyrs? And um, forcing yourself to ask those questions in that kind of separated play space. Yeah, it does give you more permission to ask hard questions that you might not have the courage to ask otherwise. Hamlet taught Shakespeare, you know? Wow. I mean, 
constantly, what is the, what is the takeaway? When you're writing a poem, don't let yourself put down anything on the page that you already know. That's a good writing prompt. Yeah. Spend a month of your life. This is a month long writing prompt. Spend a month of your life in which you are forbidden from writing down anything that you already know. Wow. A lot of question marks. You'd, you'd, you'd be writing poems with lots of question marks. Cozy, I'm sorry. I probably talked too much. I, I really apologize. Last no. words, final thoughts, other poems. I probably have to go, but. I mean, I think that was good. I think it's a good ending place. <laughs> and I don't think you talked too much. I, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll edit the recording to make it sound like I'm not such a mic hog. I'm really sorry. Um, good. good. Welcome okay. to the chat. Thank you, yeah. Bye. Bye. So for today's writing prompt, I want you to experiment with a form that Yeats uses very often called Atavarima. Atavarima is originally an Italian poetic form, but it has been written in by many great English poets, including uh, Lord Byron and W.B. Yeats. I think it's safe to say that Byron and Yeats are the two best writers of Ottava Rima in English, and it's an interesting comparison since, since their poetry couldn't be more dissimilar. This just goes to show you that a great poetic form is highly adaptable to all kinds of different voices and styles and tones. Byron is, a, is of course, extremely hilarious and jocular, Yeats quite brooding and serious. And yet both of them can be right at home inside this form called Atavarima. It is a stanza of eight lines, and it has a rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. To see an example of this, you can just read any section of Byron's Don Juan or Yeats's poem Among School Children or Sailing to Byzantium. What I want you to do for this writing prompt is to just try writing in Atavarima. Now, I mean, that sounds quite general, but I want you to do this for a specific reason, not necessarily to produce a poem in Atavarima. I want you to just write some stanzas, three, four, or five stanzas in Atavarima about anything, about an object, about a landscape, about a person, about an emotion. It doesn't really matter. What I'm hoping will happen and what I think will happen is that the rhyme scheme will force you into phrases and words and sentences that your brain, without the rhyme scheme, would never have come up with. So the rhyme scheme kind of forces you down roads that you wouldn't necessarily want to travel down or think to travel down or knew existed. Because you have to rhyme pool, you need, you know, tool or something like this. And so you're going to be forced into new thoughts. And since one of the best ways to write poetry is to constantly be surprising yourself, this is one great way to, to enforce some level of surprise in the process of writing. I myself have done this many times where I'm writing a poem. Sometimes these are formal poems. And sometimes these rhymes will remain in the final draft. But often I'll just, in the middle of drafting a poem, I'll spend several days writing in a form like this. And I've done this with Atavarima several times. I'll choose to write about this topic. Let's say I'm writing a poem. Right now I'm writing a poem about cacti, the desert plant, right? So I might choose to write for several days some stanzas about cacti in Atavarima, simply even though I know that my final poem isn't going to be in this form, but I'll inhabit this form for a while because I know it will push me into phrases, into thoughts, into words, into sentences, into ideas, into turns of thought that will make my poem better. So I'll spend several days writing an Atavarima, and then I'll go through all of those stanzas and just pick out the best, most surprising bits. And suddenly I have all kinds of wonderful jewels with which to build, you know, the actual poem that I'm writing whether or not it's in free verse or strict form. So this writing prompt can take as long as you want it to take. It could take five minutes, it can take an hour, it could take several days. Spend some time trying out Atavarima, letting yourself, forcing yourself to be surprised. This is a way that you can kind of learn to think in a new way through poetic form. The poetic form will force you into new thoughts. It's time for the poem of the day. I was very sad to read in the news last week about the death of the poet Anne Stevenson, a poet from England whose work I've loved for a long time. She writes especially well about children and parenting and motherhood. 
And her poem, The Victory, has been one of my favorite poems, not just my favorite poems by her, but more or less in general, for a long time. So I'd like to read it. This poem is called The Victory. It's by Anne Stevenson. I thought you were my victory, though you cut me like a knife when I brought you out of my body into your life. Tiny antagonist, gory, blue as a bruise. The stains of your cloud of glory bled from my veins. How can you dare, blind thing, blank insect eyes? You barb the air, you sting with bladed cries. Snail, scary knot of desires, hungry snarl, small sun, why do I have to love you? How have you won? I hope you enjoyed that class about Yeats. The next one will be about the poetry of T.S. Eliot, specifically his book Four Quartets. I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, try some Atavarima, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm-hmm.